All right. Coming to you live, high above Congress Street. It is the System Failure Podcast number 14. <laughs> yep, from beautiful, from beautiful Portland, Maine. How's it going this week, Brian? I'm pretty good. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Um, I suppose the first thing to talk about is how we uh, went out to uh, to see Mr. RFK Jr. last week when he visited our uh, home city here in Portland uh, to make his pitch for president. Um, that was entertaining, eh? Uh, yeah, it was nice to see RFK talk in person. I guess he raised my awareness to some things I hadn't quite thought about. But I guess uh, his spiel, I mean, the main talking points were, uh, let's see, homelessness, the cost of housing, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, uh, and Ukraine. Those seem like the main beats. Yeah, well, I, I would say, yeah, it seemed like um, he, had a, he, he gave us a, a grim tour of America as she stands in 2023. And uh, the main um, the main thread that connected all of those topics together, you know, homelessness, whatnot, is the f- unfortunate fact that um, virtually every major company in America, if you look up their public, the, the the majority investors, the institutional investors that own big companies like Apple or Google or Disney, are as public information um, from their SEC filings. And so you can go online and look up who owns these companies, who are the top shareholders in these companies. And in every single one, you name you to name the international conglomerate is to discover that the majority of shareholders are primarily comprised of um, firms called BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street Bank. And then, if you were to go and do the same exercise with BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street Bank themselves, why then you would discover that they all own each other, that they're all each other's majority shareholders. So there really is. Um, if you've ever seen that graphic that shows where uh, who owns the major brands in the grocery store, and they all turn out to be owned by six major brands, no matter what it is you're buying up in the supermarket, it, it all comes from one of six corporate conglomerates. And then, of course, those six conglomerates would be owned by the three firms just mentioned, Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street Bank. And so a very tiny number of people control the the profits and the direction and have their hands on the ship's wheel of every major corporate, every recognizable uh, corporate logo uh, in in the modern world, and these people, of course, uh, are the, the sorts that meet out at Davos and the and run the World Economic Forum. And so he was he was his whole spiel focused on connecting everything that's happening to um, like the war in Ukraine or homelessness to this. Um, to this uh, th- this James Bond's dark <laughs> this dark group of James Bond villain esque sort of people, um, and that that's his main uh, his main um, his main pitch, I suppose, for the presidency. Would you say that's more or less accurate? I would. Yeah, I mean, it's too bad our podcast isn't more popular because maybe we get RFK <laughs> on here to you know speak some gloom and doom. Uh, but you know, uh, well, maybe you know, closer to the election, I'm sure he's going to be back in Maine, and so you know, maybe we'll hit it off by then, and uh, we can get RFK into my little apartment here, <laughs> yeah, in his security crew, and yeah, the <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe, maybe so. I'm sure, I'm sure of it. Um, so um, that was interesting, and it's something that no other major presidential candidate talks about because, of course, the DNC and the RNC are owned by the very same. And so um, they will do anything to avoid talking about the extent to which corporate interests influence our politics. Well, I don't think I've ever heard Biden or Donald Trump really talk about homelessness or the cost of housing in any serious way. 
Um, also, well, just on Ukraine, well, the one thing that RFK was saying that uh, I just hadn't really thought about before, but, you know, the terms of these loans, you know, to the Ukraine is that they have to put up um, their properties, so, like, their farmland and their airports and whatnot, to international buyers, like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. And, uh, I mean, so basically what's happened is, uh, you know, the establishment or, well, I mean, to talk about BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, I mean, you're just talking about the overall, like, industrial complex of America, which is, like, branched out from just being, the, it's not just the military anymore, it's, you know, it's, it's like, medical and, uh, I don't know, it's everything, but medical and military are probably the two biggest wings of it. But anyway, I mean, they got everyone mad at the Donald and felt like that by supporting this war in the Ukraine, they were getting one over on the Donald by striking at his buddy Putin. Right, because he's a dangerous and sinister agent of Moscow. Yeah, and now, you know, a few years in, uh, well, I mean, we're talking about in the last pod, but the average age of a military soldier in Ukraine is 43, and you've got Zelensky, you know, desperately shaking the can, trying to drum up some political support. And uh, and now everyone's like forgotten about Ukraine. Uh, I mean, thanks to you know Israel. And man, that is just a complete disaster. That is just a a humanitarian like uh, crisis. Or I mean, man, what a what a failure. <laughs> I mean, wait, everyone really got played. Uh, we all let ourselves really get played by uh, yeah, the industrial complex. There. That is <laughs> wild. I think we ought to, uh, you hate to give the Donald too much credit. I mean, the man is clearly a shyster of the first order. But, I mean, during the 2016 election, do you remember him talking about, like, during the debates, he would be like, oh, yeah, I cut a check to Hillary Clinton and she showed up at my wedding. You know, he would, like, at least talk about the fact that the uh, politicians are completely for sale and totally corrupt. And he would at least acknowledge that evident elephant in the room. And I, I think that probably explains a lot about why 2016 went the way that it did, eh? Well, I mean, it's your job as a politician to, like, piss on you and say it's raining, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the name of the game. Well, uh, it, well, that is what it's evolved into, yeah. Not ideally what it would be, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, what else are you... I mean, that, yeah, well, certainly uh, in this uh, stage in America. And so, I mean, I don't know. I was thinking about it, and, you know, we... Well, you're always feeling that collapse is nigh, and I guess... Sometimes I feel like collapse is nigh, and then sometimes I feel like things are going to carry on forever. But, you know, I was thinking about it. (laughs) And, well, I mean, they really had to, like, ram this COVID thing down our throats to prop up the regime another four years, right? Mm, Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, maybe if there had been, like, a not mail-in ballot election, Joe Biden could have won. But, I mean, it seems like they ran the COVID down our throats, I mean, they, I mean, they got everyone having papers and it's like an installation of a a Nazi regime trying to force you to get vaccinations that the vast majority of us seems like we, you know, well, I mean, the vast majority of people aren't going to die to COVID, although like a million people did die to COVID, which is a lot. But I mean, I don't know, for most of us, I mean, you you just, you're going to live, right? And yeah, anyway, uh, COVID's still around in 2023. It's there's the, they're announcing new variants, you know, but just like no one cares anymore. And that makes me feel like you that there may not be there may be nothing but air behind the 
red matador's cape that was so important for us to focus on for that uh that two-year interlude um but i'm like well i mean a million people died of covid well were they really old and obese did they have pre-existing conditions did they die of covid did they die with covid um I feel like it's really hard to get a good read on exa- just how serious the whole thing actually was. Well, it's hard not to feel like that they need to ram something like that down our throats to keep control of the system, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. otherwise, the people are going to elect the Donald because the establishment's not going to let us have Bernie, right? Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I don't... Like, I mean, we've got this election coming up and well, in another year, basically. But, I mean, well... RFK was optimistic about his chances because in a, like a three-person race, he only needs 38% of the vote. And everyone hates the Donald and Biden, or a lot of people hate one or the other. And you have like this third-party candidate. I mean, it doesn't seem that crazy that he could have a good run. But on the other hand, uh, well, you just know that the establishment's not going to go down uh without uh <laughs> another like uh reason to lock us in our homes and have mail-in ballots mm, and yeah. i guess uh well i mean i guess the future can go like one of two ways right i mean either the powers that be can relinquish their control and let us yeah. you know democratically vote in bernie or someone similar or there's gonna be you know a shocking pandemic where we all have to you know have papers and be locked inside our houses and narc on our neighbors and whatnot think they can pull off the pandemic i feel like they're going to conjure up something else i mean can they pull off another pandemic it really was it really turned out to be i don't i feel like there'd be a lot more resistance this time around i don't know maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part well you think there would have been more resistance last time but as i mentioned before a medical thing is important because on like a terrorist attack you know you need to have you can have medical authority. You get just, just if you have this medical degree, you have the authority. Mm, yeah. Uh, and so something like that, where you just have to listen to the authority and you're not allowed to think for yourself, is uh, you know what they need. And so I'm sure they're <laughs> hard at work uh, figuring out what they want to do here. But uh, I mean, uh, now unless the establishment just lets us vote in, you know, like a like a socialist like Bernie, in which case, you know, I'll uh, say nice things about you know Hillary and Bill Gates and all these people. Uh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> yeah, uh, uh, yeah. There really is a tension between the the sinister forces of concentrated wealth and finance and compound interest and democracy. On the other hand, and hasn't hasn't there all hasn't that ever been the case? Um, one thing that I think um, we'd ought to point out this juncture um, goes back one or two points you made earlier. Um, it used to be like the early days of the British Empire, you just send gunships into Hong Kong Harbor and take things by force, right? But by the end of the British Empire, it's more like you have the Dutch East India Company and the, you award them a monopoly on the sale of textiles in uh, uh, in the Raj and in the Indian subcontinent in that section of the British Empire. And then you buy cotton on the cheap from the American South, um, and then you turn that cotton into textiles at the in the uh, the, the textile mills in Manchester, England, and um, by and so it's more like um, financial colonialism versus you know just out and out force. Right? Well, you, these are the laws. They say you owe us money. Um, I think that, um, in other words, the sort of colonialism we engage in today is that you use the IMF and the World Bank. And according to economist Michael Hudson, the World Bank um, is headquartered inside the Pentagon. Uh, that's really interesting. <laughs> uh, but what you do is you get um, one of these countries to take out a loan. 
at compound interest. And then years as the years go by, um, if anything goes wrong in that country, they won't be able to pay back the loan. And even if nothing goes wrong, the reality of compound interest means they'll have paid back the principal over and over and over again, but they owe you. And then when things go wrong in the country, what you do is say to the politicians there, you must, and this is what happened in Greece with Yanis Varoufakis and the Syriza party, you must sell off your public infrastructure. Um, your gas lines or uh, your ports or what, whatever, you know, whatever public infrastructure, you must sell them off to foreign corporations. And that's how we get control over everything and create our empire. And that's exactly what's going on. Yeah, well, it's a great chance for a crazy cash grab in Ukraine. And yeah, I mean, well, Bill Gates was, you know, famously buying up farmland during the pandemic. And uh, you can see why having farmland is important for control because it generates the food. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a shocking situation. That's that. This was RFK's specific point about the farmland in the Ukraine. Um, the, all the money, when we say billions of dollars for Ukrainians, what we're really doing is giving the Ukrainians billions of dollars. They give it back um, to our weapons manufacturers like Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and Boeing. And, um, and then they owe us money now. Uh, and, so, and in order to pay back the loan, they're going to have to auction off the richest farm soil in the entire on the face of the earth there in the Ukraine um, and give, it, give control of it to foreign corporate entities and um, – that's the sort of thing. Like that's why there was a communist revolution in Cuba. Uh, they, I mean, it was like um, American companies owned the oil and the sugar plantations down there in Cuba. And incidentally, the mob ran the um, ran the casinos in Havana. And so when uh, when Fulgencia Batista is ousted from power by Castro, they nationalized those things. And the national and like that th- that really is the story of South America in the 20th century in Central America, nationalizing things that had been taken by American corporations was something that would get the CIA hit squad out to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to gun down anyone who had funny ideas about the natural resources of these countries actually benefiting the citizens who live in those countries. Um, and so, yeah, it's a grisly, it's a grisly reality and one that's completely unsustainable to your last point about collapse possibly being around the corner. Um, uh, you, you can only, you can only stack, hordes of wealth so high before before the whole thing comes crashing down. That's what we should have learned from the fall of Rome um, and didn't. And here we are yet again um, with a ridiculous wealth disparity opening up that uh, really uh, really uh, that, that that is really a ticking time bomb. And there is a countdown clock to this whole thing. It's just a question of how much time is still left on the countdown clock. Yeah, I mean, I can't see what, you know... Uh what contrived thing they have to come up with next to keep people, you know, voting for the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that your comments make me think of is, um, debt is a moral idea, right? This idea that you should pay your debts, um, is something that we take for granted and we get it from the, from Greek Greco Roman civilization. Um, it used to be, there'd be an asterisk that, um, paying debts, no matter what the social consequences are, was a crazy thing to do. And it wasn't until the Roman empire, uh, that, uh, the absolutist idea that you should always pay your debts, um, became popularized. Um, that's something I always like to write about on Substack, And it is interesting to note that, um, the words for debt and sin are the same in many languages and still in German Schul to, to this day, I think it's accurate to say, and so this idea of what should the, the what should be what should be happening what what is the right thing to do you know, the one way to view it is that the right thing to do is for 
third world countries like Ivory Coast and Africa to pay their debts because after all, they borrowed money and signed a contract um, or for student loan debtors to pay their debts because after all, they signed a contract and you know they're, they're, they're willing, the right thing to do is to have all the young people turn over their money to the banks, even if that means they can't have kids and the entire country collapses um, from population decline. <laughs> so, so, I mean, um, so, and, and of course, another way of viewing that is, well, we'd ought to adjust the mathematical model to match what's going on in reality and not just allow the mathematical model to be used as a scheme to lever away all of the wealth of society and pile it up in the accounts of a tiny number among us. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, obviously, this supremacy of finance above like all else, you know, well, like ethics or, uh, you know, humanitarianism or uh, any, you know, any kind of feeling or empathy uh, is truly shocking. Yeah. It's a crazy justification. If you regard the Bible as the document that came out of the collapse of the Roman Empire, there you find Jesus making no bones about this. Uh, he is very anti banker, anti-moneylender, chucking moneylenders out the temple and all four gospels bodily expelling them. I guess you you might even call that assault uh, today. Um, or saying that a, a camel is more likely to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man entering into the kingdom of heaven. You know, the, 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 this, these elements of the Bible are famous and rarely talked about um, anymore these days because they don't match the modern ethos that we have about always paying your debts. I don't know. Well, I, I mean, the system, the collapse, I mean, I, I guess the collapse has happened. You know, it happened back in 08, like mm. we've talked about. Yeah, yeah. And it's just these contrived things to keep the system going. Well, what we can look forward to is, uh, I mean, the system is like coming to its end, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we live in the end times as foretold in the book of Revelations, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's caving in on itself. And, uh, you know, we're all just, kind of trying to live our lives yeah like morals are like a crazy conundrum right i mean well just like the situation in the middle east i mean it's a it's a crazy conflagration i mean well i did listen to some of sam harris's most recent podcast and he just has like this 100 percent moral certainty that the israeli position is like the just ones and that the uh you know the arabs uh they just senselessly want to kill you know the jews and yeah, I, well, just it's hard to navigate like morals. Like, I mean, you could be like vegan, right, and commit to causing no harm to any other animal. Um, but the nature of our existence is that we're gonna have to compete for space. I mean, maybe there's space for everyone if you want to live in the middle of the desert by yourself. But I mean, there's always gonna be we're, all, we're just like competition is the name of the game, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you, like, draw these moral lines and whatnot? I think it is interesting. Uh, well, I mean, you, you've talked about... Uh, well, I guess you were just posting about it on Reddit today, huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, like, but, like, yeah, well, the... Like, the sacred feminine... The hag or whatever, or, like, uh, the... With the crone, that's the crone, it. crone, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it does seem... Like there's this glorification of young females in our society, and then uh, you know once uh, once females have like lost that uh, that youthful uh, you know the the thing that makes you lusty, 
And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, anyway, once that's gone, we, I mean, we, I, it seems like we pretty much abandoned women and, you know, we uh, dropped them like a bad habit. And uh, I mean, that, that, that has to be like part of the imbalance, right? Like the, yes. the lack of value of like, yeah, femininity beyond, uh, you know, youthful fertility, right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I I too sense that, and I wonder. Not being um, female myself, I sense that there's no sensible. There, there. The the wise old woman who knows all of the fungus, all the fungi, and the herbs, and what they do in the forest. Uh, that person had to be recast as the witch at the time that Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire. Why? Well, um, traditionally there would have been three. In the way that in the way that there's a male trinity, there had been a female trinity celebrated at the uh, at Eleusis, that famous religious site just outside of Athens, which was the beating heart of pre-Christian pagan religion. And there, the um, the, the 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 story goes that this young girl Persephone, um, she's pl- she's plucking flowers one day. A crack opens up in the earth. Out of that crack in the earth comes the dark god of the underworld, Hades, or Pluto, as the Romans called him. Um, Prosperine, uh, Prosperine, I think, was the Roman name for Persephone. Anyway, she gets dragged to hell. There, she gets raped, becomes queen of the underworld. And um, and while that's happening, her mom is looking for her, Demeter, the mother. Um, who's the second of the three feminine archetypes. Demeter's the grain goddess. She's the one that makes the crops grow. She's the, as I mentioned, the cereal grains are her symbol. And um, she's looking for her mother, uh, looking for her daughter, looking for her daughter, can't find her. And she's helped by two people. One, the good, by two groups. One, the good people of the town of Eleusis help her um, because that is where the crack in the earth is located. And you can still go see it today where she got dragged to hell for, through. And... Um, and then the old, the old crone, the old woman, the goddess of witchcraft, Hecate, who's said to be trying herself. If you find a statue, if you look up, go to Wikipedia, enter the name Hecate in, you'll see a picture of Hecate, and she's got three heads, or she's three people in one. Um, and she's the goddess of crossroads and of witchcraft. And um, and so uh, and then of course at Eleusis at Eleusis they were consuming psychedelic drugs, um, ergot that grows on cereal grains, and having this crazy trip, and um, having there was a, the the whole thing is a big symbol of death and rebirth. And when Persephone's rescued from hell, she's eaten three pomegranate seeds, and so she has to remain in hell three months out of every year. And when that happens, her mom is sad, and when her mom is sad, she forgets to make the crops grow. So that's why we have the winter. So the broad theme is death and rebirth, and the and and that theme is that theme of death and rebirth of course it's um conceptualized as feminine because women are the ones that give birth and so you have the invocation of the triple aspect of the feminine person the 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 virgin the mother and the crone and um when the church came around and when the romans when the church became the state religion of the roman empire they didn't want people finding god by plucking mushrooms in the forest and eating them they wanted people finding god by you know paying the church going to church um by consolidating power under the, the the flagging power of the Roman emperors was buttressed by this idea that they were going to take over this religion, and so they had to turn the crone into the eater of children and the consort of Satan himself. <laughs> and so your point is this: now there's not like a sensible third phase to the feminine life the feminine life cycle, and so I too I we definitely value um, hot young women. We definitely value mothers. I mean, uh, I mean the we. I mean, it's how often do we like, when when moms complain like we society perk up and listen. Um, but like old women are kind of 
demonized or discarded. So I wonder if we had, uh, we well, at some point we'll have to have an actual woman, maybe like Tracy, my fiance, can come on this podcast and tell us if she agrees with that. Because, um, I mean, this is from the outside looking in. It's just what I would imagine. Um, but, um, yeah, that's that's interesting. How did we get on the topic of the crone? I, I can't remember now. Well, we were just talking about how, like, like how we we've like lost our sort of moral compass, uh, or there, there's yeah. these inherent moral challenges, and part of the problem is that like you know, losing the value of the crone seems like a piece of the puzzle. Although it's interesting because obviously you know we've talked about Persephone and Demeter on this podcast before, and I mean, we've talked a, I mean a little bit about this business about the crone, but I mean like Hecate. Like I mean, it's like a three-headed person. Like, what what does that mean? Is it like an embodiment of all three stages in one yeah. or something? Um, okay. Well, now you really asked the important question. Um, j- just like now, people like in the um, aftermath of Rome, of uh, Christianity becoming the uh, state religion of Rome, there was like a huge argument about whether Jesus was was like always a member of this trinity or like that in other words the hashing out of the trinity and the arian heresy was this huge thing where like people got killed over and like were fighting over like what is the trinity exactly um and the idea is that is that see, you see the, it, it's the it's the holy grail that that's come to symbolize this little this this underground secret and that is that you're we're not your individuality is a complete illusion right either you have allegiance to yourself um or you have allegiance to the broad trajectory of humankind, right? When, when, um, it, when the Christian church raised those great cathedrals in Europe in the Middle Ages, right, the whole point of those cathedrals is that they're sculptures in time. The people who laid the foundation stones and drew up the plans understood that they would, they would be moldering in their graves by the time the project was completed, right? There's that old saying that society is healthiest when old men plant trees they know they will never sit under, right? The question is, do you pursue a egoic, self-centered strategy, or do you pursue a strategy to advance the career of humankind as a whole? Um, and, uh, and that really goes to whether you are an individual or whether, whether you are a specific instance of a pattern only or whether you are the broader pattern itself. Now, in the essay I posted on Substack this week, I used the example of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony as a way to understand this dichotomy. If you type in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony into Spotify, your Spotify app, you're going to get hundreds, maybe thousands of different performances, right? But, but there's only one Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, right? And, and that, and you may be sitting in the conference concert hall listening to a specific performance of the symphony. And if you came to believe, and you might, you might fear the end of the performance, unless you realize that what you're listening to is just a. A, an iteration of a pattern and you either identify as the individual iteration in which case you can look forward to your death <laughs> or you identify as the pattern right so because Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is immortal right no matter how many times it's performed the Ninth Symphony is still there does that make any sense well yeah but so how does that relate to Hecate it relates to um, the idea of three of a triune goddess three gods in one and that um, that is a theme that is so broad you can find it um, you can find it in Macbeth with the three witches at the beginning who you know the ones yeah. toil 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 and trouble I, I can't remember their double their, double toil and trouble ah, yes good I'm glad someone remembers their Shakespeare um, you can see it in Botticelli's Primavera which um, has the picture of the three graces included in it you know it's a it was one of these paintings that boldly contained pagan themes in a time when the Vatican still ran everything in the in the high Renaissance. Um, 
it's um, and and it is and and it's what the it's what the Holy Grail really represents, right? Do you remember the Da Vinci Code? Remember this, the Da Vinci Code? Well, yeah. And what was? Can you articulate to me what the what the central idea behind the Da Vinci Code was? Uh, that the Holy Grail was like the bloodline of Jesus or something. Yeah. So the Grail, the the Grail legend in the literal sense is that it's the cup wielded by Joseph, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who caught the blood of Christ at the time of the crucifixion. And as the story goes, Joseph of Arimathea brought that cup eventually to England, um, to Glastonbury, where they built an abbey. Um, and um, and he had uh, and uh, Glastonbury Abbey is supposedly also the final resting place of King Arthur, the famed seeker of the Holy Grail. But Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code suggests that <clears throat> what we're really talking about is not a cup, but Jesus's wife, Mary Magdalene, who was pregnant with his child at the time of the crucifixion. And because the church fathers didn't want the offspring of Jesus showing up and challenging them for control of the newfangled Christian church, they had to erase Mary's gospel, which uh, was rediscovered in 1898 from the canon. So you don't have Mary's gospel in the canon. It goes by the way, the same way as the gospel of like Doubting Thomas. I mean, there's, there's dozens of gospels, only four make it into the canon, and Mary's is not going to be one of them because... They want they want to make Jesus out to be a god first of all, so he's not having sex. Um, but also, they don't want a, you don't want, as I mentioned, descendants of Jesus showing up and being like, "All right, well, we we like look at what happened with Islam, right?" There's this whole there's this whole uh, the schism between Shia and Sunni is all about: do we follow Abu Bakr, this administrator, or do we follow the family of the prophet? Uh, and now and it couldn't be decided, and you still have two branches of Islam to this day. And um, because, and so the church had to recast Mary as a whore, and that's why Mary Magdalene is. It actually does not call her a whore in the Bible. It's like um, it's a little unclear, but the, but that's the understanding we're supposed to get that this woman is actually a prostitute and not the honored wife of Jesus. Um, I oh, I can't remember who it is. One of the disciples has a line in the Bible saying we're talking about how Jesus loved Mary more than all of them. <laughs> it's like well, it's not that. It, it Dan Brown has a whole list, all these lists of. Uh, of sort of evidence that uh, that he compiled as part of his you know exciting you know bang bang thriller shoot 'em up thriller, um, but the point is that the 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 cup is not it's not a literal cup that holds the bloodline of Jesus. It's the physical person of Mary, um, which in the book turns out to be buried at Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland, which is on the exact same north south meridian as Glastonbury Abbey. Um, so it's quite a skein a yarn to to un uh, to unwind. Um, the other thing that the other tie in here has to do with drugs, um, because of course, what were they drinking uh, the sacred Kaikiana Delusis out of where they first celebrate, well, uh, where they were celebrating the triune feminine, the sacred feminine, they were drinking out of a, a, a sacred chalice um, and the intoxication cult of Dionysus and Bacchus, which came out of Eleusis it, what, this is symbolized by this Cantharos cup. Like a cup is a, uh, a cup is a integral to the legends surrounding the pre-Christian pagan religion of Greece and Rome, and um, that's and so the idea is that um, is that the supporters of Mary are driven underground during the time of the early church, and they have to use this cup as a symbol to clandestinely refer to uh, to this vessel that holds the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Um, so you can see how the whole thing kind of comes around. There's so many different interlocking pieces and connections to the legend. And, um, of course, the psychedelic drugs um, dissolve the ego, and they allow you to recognize that you are much, that you are really a pattern 
and not any specific instance of a pattern. Of course, in another way, it allows you to see the sheet music for Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Rather than being trapped in time and dreading the end of the performance, you realize that you, that, uh, you don't have to fear, right, the... You don't have to fear the end of the performance. Um, and that's really what the crucifixion was all about. Jesus was so sure that he was not uh, individual, that he was a recurring pattern, that he just allowed the Roman government to destroy his body voluntarily in a horrific public display. And within a couple hundred short years, uh, he, the Roman government realizes they're powerless to stop that, stop that ideology. Christians are gleefully volunteering to go into the Colosseum and get eaten by lions because they realize that martyrdom like poison ivy, like scratching poison ivy, is just going to spread the ideology even more. And eventually the Roman emperors have to, they can't violently repress this ideology. They have to adopt it and then take it over from the inside and make some key changes, including excommunicating the crone so that people won't ask too many questions. Um, because it's impossible to control people if they don't identify with their ego. Well, uh, all right. Well, so just, I mean, I, it seems like having Hecate be the three heads in one it would be like if the if the Holy Trinity was like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it seems like there should be like a third thing, and then uh, and then this three-headed Hecate would be like all three things together, right? It's a bit garbled. I think the Trinity originally comes from the Egyptian religion, where you had um, Isis, Horus, uh, uh, Osiris, Horus, and Isis. So it wasn't there wasn't a, two, a, tr- a Trinity for each gender there was like one trinity and then the mother figure was one of those and then there you had the the holy child horus and then the archetypical father osiris um and oddly enough um the to the egyptians the sun um during different times of the day was different gods so there's this this idea that the one sun is different gods at different times it works into the um egyptian faith um i i think that uh for example the holy spirit so Osiris is the um, is the sun at exactly noontime. That's why you build obelisks, right? Because the shadow of the obelisk disappears at noon. Like when the sun's directly overhead, the, sh- the obelisk casts no shadow. So you build this obelisk to mark the moment that Osiris appears in your life. Horus was um, the sun just as it just as, the, the the dawn sun just as it arose, and we still call the the we still call it the horizon or the horoscope. Um, and then there's um, there's Ra, who is kind of the the god of everything, kind of like the Holy Spirit, or um, or there's Set, who is the god of death, who is the sun at Set. Uh, we still call it a sunset to this day. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit. It's a, it gets a little bit garbled, um, and it's it really is confusing because a lot of gods are there. There's um, something called syncretism, where gods morph into each other and and bounce off each other like so many billiard balls and get mixed up. And so, it's a complex skein of yarn to unwind, as you can tell. Um, there's quite a bit under that hood. Well, I suppose the unintuitiveness of it is part of the, uh, that's, uh, well, that's what like the Romans fought for back then, mm. right? Yeah, well, yeah. Um, uh, everyone's trying to change the mythology to benefit their, uh, short-term economic wants and needs and, uh, early Christianity, certainly no exception on that front. All right. Yeah. Um, w- rewinding all the way to um, the the Middle Eastern conflict, um, did Mister Harris mention like so? RFK when we went and saw him was not going to talk about like uh, the situation in the Middle East at all. Um, and it, he had a question and answer session. The question and answer session was over. They were wrapping up to do the the handshake line. Um, and then, there, of course, the world's most obnoxious person <laughs> has to start just starts yelling questions about. Um, 
about Gaza. And I'm, I'm glad he did because I wanted to hear what RFK had to say on the matter. Um, I don't know if I'd be just shouting at RFK when they're trying to get the handshake line going, but um, it's a bold move. Yeah, well, he's a, obviously like a high, highly disagreeable person <laughs> who is willing to do this. Um, and like I presume, Dr. Harris, uh, RFK, he just there's just no contact with this whole business about the land grab. Now, I, I, I mean, obviously the tactics of Hamas are uh, reprehensible, deplorable. Um, but I don't think we can just say that it's because that they're doing this just based on only on the by the on the fact that they're bad people, right? I just think we have to, and I, I this really is where I come down on the matter. There, there is a land grab that has to be acknowledged here. Did Doctor Harris mention that at all, or is it just, uh, just oh, just Islam is terrible, and that's why these people have to be eradicated? Uh yeah, he mostly was saying how Islam is terrible. He did make some points about how Islam is different than Christianity, and I guess that, I mean, like, I guess there's more references to like Muhammad, like uh, like murdering people or taking people as prisoners and stuff, which like Jesus doesn't really do, and so, uh, I mean, well, I always felt like Islam and Christianity were, you know, well they're both. If you read the scriptures, they've got like crazy writings in both. And so I basically consider them equal and that the differences between like the reason why you don't have like Christian terrorists is, you know, is like a, you know, it's just a political difference. I mean, the Christians are in power. So, I mean, I, he made some compelling arguments that maybe there's some differences about yeah. Islam compared to Christianity, which I guess is the case, but I don't know. Like it's, it's yeah I don't know the, the the land grab is a crazy business and it goes back to these questions of morals. I mean I'm not I mean it happened like in 1915 right? Isn't that like when it started with like with the United Nations or whatever? Or I guess it was probably 1945. Is yeah, what it was, I right? think it's like 48 or something like that. The Brits are going to try to administrate this. Um, I mean, obviously after the Holocaust, you want to put the Jews somewhere. Um, they can't really find a home for them in Europe, so they repatriate them to Israel and. Um, Boy, uh, and then uh, you know, and then the and then, but then Americans are the ones that are really going to run the post. Uh, the, uh, clearly, the British Empire has you know, all but collapsed in the wake of World War II, and it's going to be the Americans taking over. So we get involved there. Um, well, the American involvement starts, I think, in the 1970s or whatever, like after the Vietnam War, and it was primarily like a British thing before that. And you know, we were still kind of isolationist back then, and not. Uh, yeah, is it what's it called, the Balcor Declaration or something that the, that the British, um, like the British Foreign Office, and I can't, I really should uh, should um, double down on my history. But then, of course, there's a couple of crazy wars where Israel takes over huge chunks of the Middle East, including the Sinai in that 1967 war, um, which they eventually give back to Egypt. Um, there's some connection here because Egypt um, uh, Nasser uh, uh, nationalizes the Suez Canal and humiliates the Brits in the, like the late 50s in the in the Suez affair, and that 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 leads to that that's another complex you know ingredient you have to mix into this crazy cake. Um, but um, but there, there's like there's been a land grab. I just think we have to factor that in, and anyone who's not factoring it in, I can't take seriously. And man, I just can't believe that Sam Harris, uh, it, his decline has just been so weird. Um, I don't quite know what to make of it exactly. Well, I, I guess also the Ottoman Empire, I mean, used to be like the peak of civilization, right? Of course, yeah. And they were once the, yeah, I mean, that was centuries ago. Um, they were a corrupt and wheezing old um, uh, corpse, you know, walking corpse by the time World War One came around uh, when they met their final 
end, but um, that was yeah, that was their territory. Exactly right. Uh, yeah, but I don't. I mean, I don't know. I guess I mean it's always been death to Jews for like a long time, and then they up and like, well, let's uh, what's the <laughs> what can we do that'll cause the most conflict? Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think I'd be remiss at this point if we didn't point out the, the connection between finance and anti-Semitism mentioned on this podcast before. Um, again, it's, uh, it's right there in Shakespeare. If you go back to the Merchant of Venice, uh, with, um, Shylock the Jew and his, and, and t- taking a, being a creditor to Antonio, the Venetian. And, uh, the old play in the playbook was what you, the way you deal with it. it used to be that, um, it used to be that in, in the old, uh, bad Babylonian Persian kingdoms, you'd periodically forgive debt and, um, they didn't have that in the middle ages. So when Kings got into too much debt to the financiers, they would just say that the Jews were poisoning the well and had to be rounded up and have their wealth seized. And these, the echoes of that, uh, made it all the way into the Holocaust where you just like all that, that just massive seizure of Jew- Jewish wealth. And it's because these guys were the only ones that were allowed to lend money because the Christian faith and the Muslim faith forbade it uh, outright. Um, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, there's definitely a, a connection there. Well, I mean, clearly uh, being Jewish is like this unique thing. <laughs> and it is just like other minorities, uh, you know, usually just get oppressed. But I mean, uh, I mean, Jews have historically been the money lenders, and so they're like in a different spot. Uh, so they like, you know, have money and power, but still get thrown down the well once in a while when the debts get out of control. Or it is a, it's it's a really crazy dynamic of our people. Yeah, in the 20th century, the era of hyper financialization, it would seem that um, that the people who were traditionally the money lenders have some power to strike back. And maybe that's what's going on in the Middle East and to, to, to Dr. Harris's point. But, um, but I, again, I just can only repeat, I, I think you've got to factor in the land grab when you're judging the actions of these people. Um, when, you, when there's asymmetrical projection of power, the people who have no power are going to do whatever they can, uh, do whatever they think they have to do to, to, to survive through it. I mean, it's just like the American Revolution where the Brits look down on us from snipe, for sniping at them from trees rather than lining up with bright colored coats on <laughs> and just taking our punishment. They accuse us of cheating and, uh, and just what we do with the terrorists when they leave um, IEDs beside the road while these people are cowardly, you know. But it's, it's just it's, – there's like cowardice and then there's asymmetrical – Protection of power, um, and it's hard to know where one ends and the other begins. Well, to be fair to Sam, he did say that he felt that you know uh, leading like a, a blitzkrieg on Gaza probably wasn't like the best way to do it. Yeah. Um. Ugh, man. <laughs> well, all that is uh, is fairly depressing out there. Let's hope it's not World War Three, but it sure feels like the temperature of the pot has certainly been turned up uh, over the past month or so since the uh, October the 7th incursion into Jewish te- into Israeli territory by the by Hamas. Ugh. Well, it just feels like uh the uh system coming to a crash, right? Lumbering to a halt or like just jamming up. And I just don't know like why else Hamas would try to do this strike in, against Israel other than uh I mean they sense the weakening you know position or power of the united states and they've got the backing of iran and maybe russia and i just don't know what what else is going on there and it seems 
I don't, it seems like if it seems like the power structures in America are going to go away if they don't do if we don't have some kind of crazy pandemic or a terrorist attack or something shocking happens to Pakistan, as we were saying. So I guess that's depressing, but the the upside <laughs> yeah. is that it's uh, coming to an end, right? Yeah. And, you know, you see the price of Bitcoin going up, right? Yeah. Which is uh, a sign of what's happening, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, I will offer this by way of closing out of the Middle Eastern discussion of the Middle East. Do you remember that William Butler Yeats poem? Um, higher and higher, the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Um, about you know things spiraling out of control. And the last line of that poem is, "What rough beast slouches towards Bethlehem to be born?" <laughs> it seems like a, it seems chillingly prophetic or apropos to the current situation. Yeesh. So he, wait, is he saying that the Messiah is going to happen um, yeah. uh, from the, uh, the the madness here? Yeah, he's saying that the situation is getting so crazy that he assumes the second coming is at hand. Basically, well, the Messiah being born, it doesn't really have to be a person, right? It just has to be like an idea. Yes. Yeah, I think that a Platonistic view is the way to view is the way to understand that. Yeah, and the idea just kind of has to be we all kind of need to agree about how to move forwards. And uh, yeah, it seems. Well, I mean, obviously it goes back to the crone there. Like that's just one way. If we can just sort of see things differently, we can get our you know our Star Trek utopia. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, I've been waiting for that since Star Trek: The Next Generation in the nineties. <laughs> Well, Brian, by way of lightening the mood a little bit, can I ask you how your drug use or lack thereof has been going? Well, I think I'm on week eight or nine. I'm, I'm starting to lose track, really, of how long it's been since I last smoked the weed. Yeah, I'm getting in that territory myself, but I can't claim a high number like you are. Uh, well, I hear, has it been like over a week for you? Uh, way, there... way over a week. Um, the last time I had any weed at all was back in um, October sometime. So now we're halfway through November. So I'm coming up on a month here. What? Well, that's pretty darn long then. I thought it was yeah. just like a week or two. No, no. Well, okay. So I did drink a, there was like a $2, there was like a weed soda. Um, and I drank the thing. I didn't feel anything from it. It was an expired weed soda they had on sale for $2. Um, and I, now I wished I hadn't drank it because it didn't do anything. And I can't say I can't say with perfect honesty that I haven't touched the weed in over a month. But I, I think ultimately I had to come down here. I, I really like Adam Carolla's philosophy towards weed. You've heard this. Um, like it's it's not it's not a good thing, but if there's a joint going around at a party, count me in. Right. That's that's really I think where I've landed because I cannot. Uh, T Max Gold, T- Terrence McKenna's gold standard of hitting it up once a week. Boy, I, it's so great. It's a, it, it makes me see things from. It's like um, seeing the valley from the next mountain peak over. It gives you a little binocular vision. You've got two lines of sight to compare. And uh, but my problem is I can't just do it once a week. Or I can. I don't have a hundred percent batting average doing it once a week. Uh, it's just that next day, the next the sunset comes the next day, and you're like, why? Yeah, you know, I feel like. Um, Bilbo Baggins with the one ring. It's mine. Why shouldn't I have it? And uh, so I, ha- I just, I, I thought I was going to be able to do once a week. I couldn't, I couldn't reliably do that. So I think I have to leave it in the rearview mirror for the most part. Maybe unless it's your, there's a party and there's a J-Bone going around, um, which well, is too bad. But that's where I think where I'm at. And well, it's, it's been great. I feel much better overall. 
Well, I think the problem with a once a week philosophy is like, what night are you going to do it? I see. I think Sunday doesn't work because starting the week in a haze is bad. Correct. Um, yeah, the effects last for twenty four. The the acute effects last for twenty four hours for me. I can't have it be- the day before work, so it has to be Friday or Saturday night. And and see, well, yeah, when you're doing it on Friday, kind of begets getting ratchet all weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. It's and a problem. I guess therein yeah. lies the issue, and so. I mean, I, I think that like on the full moon would be a more plausible philosophy. I still worry about that in day number two, though. And how am I going to just keep it to one day? Well, then at least if you go on a little weed bender for a few days, like the next weed bender is like 28 days out instead of like next weekend. Uh, mm. just, uh, you just have a bigger gap there. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I could see that. Hey, maybe. I mean, I, I really like this idea, you know, because it involves me be- allowing myself to do it again. But I think... Um, I think for at least a little while I got to put it on the shelf. Yeah, it'll it'll make me more successful at Substack too. I think um, it'll make me more focused. On, I'll just have less uh, less distractions. Less I'll have less to do, and so by sheer boredom I'll make I'll draw I'll cook up gin up better Substack stories. Uh, yeah. Well, reading books does seem good. Um, well, I guess the biggest thing, like here in Maine, you know, we just had daylight savings, and so now the sun goes down at four thirty. And it, uh, it really smoking the weed in the winter. I don't know. Really, you get into a crazy stupor. And I think this is the first time in the fall, like going into this daylight savings and suddenly having the four thirty sun go down that I like haven't been smoking the weed in like fifteen years. And uh, I'm inclined to believe that I'm. This is gonna be better. I don't know. I guess I've felt like the seasonal affective disorder before. But I was also like smoking the weed crazily, and I mean, I'd just be at work in like the most zombieish state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know that. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's yeah, the winter up here in the northeast, uh, in, in the northern latitudes, is tough to get through, uh, especially with this crazy. There's an there's an element that has to do with um, longitude too, where where our time zones are a full hour. So if you're towards the if you're if you're in one of the eastern edge of the time zone, like we are in Maine, then the sun really by the time we get to the winter solstice in a month, the sun's going to be going down at like four sharp, and you, you will just not be seeing the daylight, and except for on your drive to work in the morning, and that is brutal. No matter what your chemical regime is, to not see the sunlight, it's it's tough to tough to keep your um, uh, what your limbic system, your endocrine system, that's something for you. It's tough to keep your endocrine system uh, properly calibrated under such uh, conditions of darkness as that. Well, yeah. Well, the other thing about smoking the weed is that, I, I mean, it's like going on Reddit, right? Or scrolling through Twitter or just like using your phone, right? Where it's just really disruptive to like your attention span, I think. Yep. It ruins my ability to focus. I have to really be careful not to go on Twitter and Reddit. I think that uh, like the up and coming generation of old people are like really screwed. Or I mean, just like old people at least used to be. You'd have to. I just I just can't imagine being old and like not having any attention span. At least like old people, it seemed like they used to have to be patient, or uh, you, you had to have to at least be good at being yourself to make it that far. But I mean, just uh, a generation of like old people just like hunched over looking at their phones and having no social skills and like no ability to like read. Oh. It sounds uh, truly dreadful. <laughs> well, how about a, how about a, how about a positive counterpoint? I do think that if you were in a nursing home type situation, 
the ability to play video games would be huge. Like that would really be something that you could do. Like video games could really occupy your mind and keep you focused in a way that without any kind of a need to have a physical physical capability. So I don't know. Maybe when we're old in the nursing home, we can play some Madden or some Call of Duty. You know, so maybe that wouldn't be so bad. But I mean, even uh, even video games lose their luster when your attention span is blown out from a bout of social media addiction. Ugh, it's just really it's rough. Um, but but on the other hand, let me ask you this question. On the other hand, like the legacy media is trash, right? You can't go around like just believing the corporate news or reading corporate newspapers. Uh, even the local news is is horrifying. Like. Reddit and Twitter, great way. Well, they're on the decline, or at least I do feel like Reddit's a bit of a ghost town compared to what it was. But the point is that these uh, apparatus of social media are a really fast way to get the news, um, and oftentimes more accurate, despite that, despite their their various drawbacks, than the legacy media is. So, I mean, would you gonna to, to know what's going on? You just read the newspaper, or maybe it's better not to know what's going on at all. What do you reckon? I mean, at least Twitter is not like state-owned propaganda. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like trying to get like your world news on Reddit seems like a disaster. Yeah, yeah. And the world news subreddit is famously, uh, well, I guess they love blowing up Palestinians on that subreddit, right? That's heavily controlled. Uh, anytime a subreddit gets too big, it's, it gets heavily controlled. You've got to stay in that sweet spot where there's enough users to make it dynamic, but not so many users that it's attracted the attention of bot farms. I mean, in a lot of ways, the news kind of doesn't matter because we, are, <laughs> we already know what it's going to be. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, you know that the government is, stinks and they're going to be, you know, doing... They're, well, they're going to be, you know, pissing on you and calling it rain, basically. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, Brian, what do you think? Uh, you got anything else for us or should we leave it there? I guess uh, that we can wrap it up here for this week. All right. Well, uh, I'd like to remind folks to do send us an email at nop at substack.com. If you'd uh, like to tell us how, uh, how uh, trenchant or completely unfulfilling our opinions are, um, or if you think we're on anything, uh, send us a note and let us know. And um, if you fancy some reading, uh, hit up nop dot substack.com and there you can in addition to hearing all these podcasts um read some of the essays i've put up there i think some of them are good but um but they're getting better as we go so i hope to see you all on substack see you on the flippity flip (laughs) bye-bye